kid. What's your name? I can't remember. Where are you from? I can't remember. Can't you remember anything? I remember the Alamo. <laughs> first met Paul in my late 20s when I was visiting my folks place. Uh, I was taking a shower and I got out and I heard my dad say, Isaac, come meet Paul. And I'm still wearing my, sh- my towel and I walk into the kitchen and, and my dad says, Isaac, Paul, Paul, Isaac. And at first I didn't realize who it was because he was just, you know, dressed as himself. But it dawned on me that that was uh, Paul Rubens, also known as Pee Wee Herman, sitting in my kitchen. Now, I, I had always known that Paul was a family friend. We would get Christmas cards from him every year, and there he was dressed up in his uh, his Pee Wee attire. He was in his Pee Wee persona, and it was these it was always these very elaborate um, photo shoots with all kinds of. Christmas kitsch in the background and Paul doing some sort of peewee face. Um, When I met Paul, he told me he had been a fan of my writing and told me if I was ever in L.A. that I should contact him. Well, a couple years later, I would be in L.A. and I would take him up on that offer. He said uh, he would treat me to dinner. So I figured, cool, I'm going to go out to some, you know, hip L.A. restaurant with uh, with Pee Wee Herman. I thought it would be a good story to tell. He told me to meet him in his house. And it was somewhere in the Hollywood Hills. So I took an Uber there. And on the Uber ride up the winding road, I, I saw Moby getting his mail. Uh, and then at the top of the road, we had a cul-de-sac. And at the further up on the hill was was Paul's house. And I remember getting out and it, there was something very eerie about the whole thing. It, it had a very like haunted house, unlived, like recluse vibe. And there was this dead tree, I remember, kind of almost falling off the side of the cliff, covered in, you know, three dozen ravens. And it felt ominous in a way. I buzz the door and I say, Paul, it's Isaac. And Paul says, come on up, um, watch out for rattlesnakes. So I make my way up this relatively unkempt path up to Paul's house. And the house was this 60s, 70s, modern, I wouldn't call it a mansion. It didn't feel very big, but it was certainly a nice house. There was a pool, leaves in it. Paul greeted me, and the house was completely dark, filled with boxes everywhere. And, uh, but I could see in the boxes that it was like, oh, there's a lot of kitchen there, a lot of uh, tchotchkes, which you would expect from Paul. He said, uh, Do you want to see my custom lava lamps? <laughs> and I was like, All right. And he took me into his bedroom, and there were two six-foot-tall lava lamps turned on on either side of his of his bed. And I thought that was kind of funny. And then he's like, I guess you'll want to eat, some, eat something. And I was like, sure. So we go into his kitchen. 
he doesn't turn any lights on really. It's still very dark in there. And uh, I remember he was wearing a hoodie. And he said, you eat meat? And I said, I'll eat whatever. And he he's like, I'll make you some chicken tacos. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And uh, he goes in the fridge and he pulls out several Tupperware containers. And each Tupperware container had pre-chopped ingredients for the chicken tacos. And then he microwaved them and we ate. Uh, certainly wasn't the dinner I was expecting. And it wasn't the conversation I was expecting either. It was very sad. I don't remember laughing one single time hanging out with Paul, which felt odd. Um, he was concerned about money. He talked a lot about the Netflix movie, which had just come out, the Pee Wee movie. And he said they wouldn't tell him how well it was doing or if he was going to get any residuals or something. And we're seeing the consequences of that right now with all the the uh, protests and the, the strikes. Um, talked a lot about astrology. He was into that. And I guess I was at the time, but not anymore. Uh, he was smoking a lot of weed the whole time. And he kept offering it to me. And I don't like smoking weed, as avid listeners of this podcast know. Um, but I would smoke weed with Paul. I would smoke weed with P.B. Her- Herman. But each time he would... Um, offer it to me um he would take it back and be like no no your your dad wouldn't like that paul is dead now and i always wanted to help him retell his story because whenever i'd brag about pb herman being a, a good family friend um i was often met with people saying oh wasn't he a pedophile and i found this really upsetting you know cuz he's not he wasn't. That's not what he got in trouble for. And I always thought, wow, like someone needs to correct the record. Paul, why don't you want to do this? And I want to help you do it. The same day Paul died, I was in New York uh, and I went to a stand-up show to see these comedians, Eric Ray Hill and Jack Bensinger. Sarah Sherman, um, who's also known as uh, Sarah Squirm, who's on uh, SNL, Uh, She opened for them, and she did this five-minute, angry, tiny Jewish woman sermon about how Paul was her hero and how upset she was that he he was dead now. Um, She had some funny jokes about how, you know, he got in trouble for doing what you're supposed to be doing in a porn theater, and that uh, the rest of us in the audience who watch porn should actually be in jail for the porn that we do watch. And I, I realized then that I didn't need to write Paul's story. Um, he will be vindicated in death because I think his talent transcends these uh, nonsense myths that surround him. I apologize for my absence. I know it's been a few weeks since I've put up a podcast. Uh, since getting laid off, I've been on the move again. I was up north, and um, but I'll, I'll be more consistent. You know, Forgive me for that. But for this week's episode... Um, I had f- another family friend on the podcast, uh, Bob Plunkett. Uh, Bob's a writer, and he was a writer for the very magazine that laid me off. And so I knew him through that as a child. Bob is a seasoned writer who is finally getting his due. Uh, he wrote this book, My Search for Warren Harding, back in 1983. And it was a cult classic loved by all kinds of celebrities, Madonna, Larry David, 
uh, and he just never caught on. And he wrote about Paul um, back in 91 when he got busted. And so I thought it'd be a good time to have Bob on the show to talk about Paul, to talk about writing, uh, to talk about the return of homophobia. Um, what does Pee Wee say to get his show started? So does so does very bad for you. I need you to pull the microphone a little bit closer to you. Um, I'm I'm not that American, I guess, is what it comes down to. Wow, you're um, foreign, European. I'm yeah. I I eat my salads last. I'm very European like that. Um, I do too, but that's very Mexican. Eating salads last is Mexican. Yeah, that's what like the French do too, though, right? Uh, yes, I, I, yeah, I, to this day, it seems weird to have the salad first because I learned how to eat in Mexico. Yeah. You, you know, reading that New Yorker profile about you was very interesting because I had no idea that your father was a spook. Yes. Um, we can get into that. Now. Let's just talk about it right now. Let's talk about your dad. Um, okay. What do you want to know? Um, you were in Cuba and Mexico or just Mexico? Cuba and Mexico. You were in Cuba and Mexico prior to, and you were in Cuba just up to the Cuban Revolution. No, after the Cuban Revolution. You were there there after the Cuban Revolution? We're the only people on earth who moved to Cuba after the revolution. (laughs) (laughs) And your dad was a spook that whole time. He, it's very mysterious exactly what he was, mm-hmm. but he's he, all he his early training and business was intelligence work yeah. for the government. So um, he knew he knew how to do it and had been a spy during World War Two. OSS. No, FBI. FBI. Because before there was even an OSS, mm-hmm. there was the FBI, which was the, the federal part of the government that spied, believe it or not, back in those days. It was all done through the FBI. Right. So they gave him a, he theoretically had a, he had a cover, which was that he uh, worked for an American company. And during World War II, he went to Central America. And his job was to make sure the Germans did not blow up the Panama Canal. (laughs) And he was very, very successful. Yeah, they didn't blow it up. They didn't blow it up. Because of your father. Yes. He kept track of... (coughs) Single-handedly saved the Panama Canal. He kept track of all of the Germans in Central America. Uh Uh-huh. And he says that they were very, very stupid and easy to keep track of. So that was kind of reassuring. (laughs) And every plot that they had, he foiled. Wow. So. You know, one of my favorite things I'm learning about the, the Germans and the Nazis in particular is that uh, Bob's about to try my soda concoction for him, which is balsamic <coughs> vinegar and seltzer water. It's delicious. <laughs> <laughs> delicious. Um, my, one of my favorite things I'm learning about the Nazis is their obsession with uh, Atlantis and finding Santa Claus in real life. They, like, they, like, they, they spent a lot of their resources trying to prove their bizarre occult theories like hollow earth and Atlantis. Well, I've heard that too because I think we watch the same TV channel. Um, but it, was that every Nazi or just some fringe? That was the high up. That was Himmler. That was Himmler. I mean, before what's his face Hess. 
Hess was way into the occult before he uh, tried to defect to the Brit- uh, 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 Britain, um, Great Britain. Um, I don't want to get into Nazis, I, um, but you know, it's, oh, okay. it's good to confirm that the, they're you know for as good as they were at science and war, like they're pretty dumb, pretty dumb guys. They, they there was something wrong. Yeah, something there was something wrong with Nazis. <laughs> you heard it here. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> something wrong with Nazis. All right, from there we're gonna transition into a formal introduction. On today's show, we have Bob Plunkett. I've known Bob pretty much my entire life. Uh, he worked with my mother at Sarasota Magazine, and so you know you were like this fixture in my life. And in in this like peripheral <clears throat> character. Yeah, I know all about your childhood. Yeah, he knows all my my dirty, dirty secrets. Uh, Bob, you're having a late in life sort of renaissance. <clears throat> uh, you had a New Yorker profile. I don't know if he's, you, you cringed at that. Say you don't like late in life. Why do I seem old? How old are you, Bob? You want to say? I'm seventy eight. Um, that's very. You're you're a, you're a spring chicken. You know, you're a young guy still. My mistake. Okay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so Bob is having a much deserved uh, uh, sort of celebration of your work. Okay. You were featured in the New Yorker. You have a very nice profile there. Right. Uh, and they <clears throat> called you one of the funniest and gayest writers in America. Yeah, I don't. I don't know where they got the gay part from. I really have no idea. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you, um, how gay are you exactly? Are you uh, from, on a scale from Tom Cruise to Liberace? Like how gay? Oh, I'm I, I'm I'm Tom Cruise. You're Tom Cruise. Totally. You're the, you're the least gay gay man well, in America. Well, but 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 <laughs> I I'm still in the closet. You're still in the closet. So I can't confirm that I am okay. gay okay. because I'm I'm. In the closet. You know, so that's not very cool that the New Yorker outed you then. That's very inappropriate. Newspapers are always doing that. Yeah. My folks found out because they read it in the New York Times. That's how your folks found out you were yeah, gay. Yeah. Went, so the New York Times just said, Bob Plunkett, gay. <laughs> no, they, they did, were doing a roundup of gay novelists. And, oh, okay. And, and they wrote about me. And I was. How'd your parents respond to that? Uh, they weren't surprised. <laughs> <laughs> But it was never mentioned again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. You know, it's funny, like, I, growing up, like, I don't know when, like, my understanding of gay, the concept of gay became a thing. Like, is that yours? Okay. No. I, I don't think so. They're just interrupting a, a very funny thing I was about to say. Okay. What, what Here was we go. That? Okay, let's, <laughs> start, let's start, start over. Let's start over. Um, growing up, knowing you... I don't remember when I understood what uh, being gay was. Until like, you saw me. <laughs> no, no, no. I didn't like think about it. Like, it wasn't like Bob gay. It was like Bob guy who has a, uh, a pug. And that was, to me, I think, my first understanding of what get, being gay was, was being a man owning a, a pug named Peanut, right? That was the, the pug's name. That was the pug's name, yeah. yes. yes. And that, that's usually the most distinguishing characteristic. Yeah, so gay, that, I think that's, that's when uh, uh, gayness like, was birthed in my mind. Right. That's when I made that association. Um, but yeah. <laughs> um, now, Bob, you're, you have uh, two books that are being reissued, correct? Mm-hmm. 
Um, the one is uh, My Search for Warren Harding. Correct. Uh, and then another one's called Love Junkies. Love Junkies. That yeah. one's about to be, come out because... <coughs> Excuse me. It's okay. <coughs> yeah, it's coming out in May. Right. Um, did you think you'd ever be featured in The New Yorker? I mean, is this, that, is this, that, is this coming that, as a surprise that, to you? That, that, was a shock. Yeah. yeah. How'd that I, happen? What, like what made people start paying attention to you again? Um, you know, that's a very, very good question. And I haven't really been able to figure it out, but the, my new publisher, uh, the name of the company, I wish I could remember <laughs> <laughs> new directions. Uh-huh. <laughs> they, they are very good at this kind of thing of, mm-hmm. of, of getting, um, good interviews and good publicity for their writers. So they talked to the right people, and then they said, gee, it's such a slow news week. Maybe we should do this loser in Florida. <laughs> and that's basically how it happened. Um, you were quoted in The New Yorker as saying, like, you always knew you would be a celebrated writer, but only after you died. Well, I think I was being a little flippant when I said that. Sure. I, I was totally prepared for the other uh, possibility also. Mm-hmm. So... Um, but I, I certainly did not think it would happen while I was still alive to this extent. Mm-hmm. No, no, that was a shock. Bob, how do you know my hero, Larry David? Oh, I didn't realize he was your hero. It, it can be a negative story about him. I don't care. Oh, no, no. It's, um, he, he read uh, Warren Harding uh, after it came out, and he really, really liked it, and he gave it to all of his writers, and he said... You should try and imitate this book when you're writing Seinfeld because uh, it's really good and this is the kind of thing that I want. Mm-hmm. And they did, and he stole many, many things from my book that are really? now in Seinfeld. Yes. <laughs> what? What? Tell me. So, wait, oh, wait. Elaine's Dancing was a complete ripoff. Um, there was a, uh, <laughs> a half a page of dialogue that was about if you were in a plane crash in the Chilean Alps and you had to eat dead bodies to survive, would you do it? They never showed this episode anymore. It was like from the very first season. But that was taken from my book. There's the thing about to, uh, to get back at his boss. George gets a um, razor blade and in the arm of his boss's jacket, he cuts the threads so that when the boss lifts up his hand in the subway, the, the sleeve will fall off. That's from the book. But anyway, so then I got a phone call, and it's Larry David. Mm-hmm. And he said, um, how would you like to write for Seinfeld? Now, I was so stupid that I said, what's Seinfeld? I hadn't seen it. It had been on for a year, but I hadn't seen it. Uh-huh. And he explained that it was a sitcom. And I said, well, let me think about it. And he said, okay, I'll call you in a week. So he called me in a week, and of course I, I found out what it was, and I said, I'm going to write for Seinfeld, I'm going to write for Seinfeld. And he called me in a week, and he said, I've changed my mind. <laughs> I'm going to write everything myself this season. So that's what happened. But he took, in that season, he took your your jokes or prior to oh, that? He, all for he kept stealing them for the rest of his life larry you bitch yes you you, you joke stealing bitch but but you know everybody does it i yeah, mean yeah, yeah. i stole them from somewhere else <laughs> you know so um yeah that's a uh, coming up with original ideas is uh i used to think that such a thing existed what what a, originality 
not in writing or entertainment. Absolutely not. And well, it shouldn't because then people won't get it. Yeah. You know, yeah, everything yeah. that works has been done. So you're not going to, you can come up with something new, but it's going to be stupid and not following the rules of art and entertainment. Yeah, there's nothing, nothing yeah. new under the sun. Um, does it make it hard for you to watch Larry David's work because of that? No, it's, it's, I, I find it's kind of inspiring because it's so well done. Mm-hmm. You know, what he does is so well done. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> and I'm very flattered that he thought of me as a kindred spirit. Yeah. Uh, it's just that, you know, there was no payoff and he stole an <laughs> awful lot of stuff. <laughs> Why do you think you weren't more successful earlier in life as a writer? Because I will say, um, you know, no, you I are have, a fantastic have, writer. Uh, the, the answer to that is I was stuck in Sarasota. Are you telling me I should get the fuck out of here? Well, you should th- you should look at what happened to me, and, and, and it would have some input into your decisions. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying yes, because uh, I, I ended up, in a very good position, you know. I, I'm old, I'm an old person, and my work is respected. And mm-hmm. uh, so, you know, I had a very good run, and it ended very well. I'm getting a little off the track. We were talking about you. <laughs> so we can talk about me as much as you want, but you know. But what we what, what, what you wanted to know if you should stay get out of Sarasota? Yeah. <clears throat> I have. I keep coming back and forth, but yeah. I it, to me, it seems like you're doing it right, but I don't know exactly what you're doing when you're out of town. You are you are working, right? I mean, I feel like I'm always working twenty four seven. Yeah, me too. Like my, yeah, like my mind's always trying to figure something. But, but out. I mean, you have uh, an assignment that you are working on often when you go out of town, or you go to look for assignments. I go to look for assignments, and sometimes I have. Usually I'm, I'm paying out of pocket initially, and then I recoup it after I find the story. And then, uh, you know, it's not lucrative, that's for sure. But, you know, you don't write for, for money, especially these days. Um, a lot of people try to. It's um, just not feasible. I mean, if, if No, you it's get, not. Yeah, it's you, not. And that's what I was going to ask you next is, is, do you realize you're in a dying profession, which is writing for magazines? Yeah, well, I just got laid off. You know that. Yes. So, um, so you, you, I know. Yeah. You uh, know a, a prime example of it. Plus, <laughs> Sarasota magazines closed their office, as I'm sure you know. They just closed them? Yeah. No, that was news to me. No. If you have anything at work, you better go get it. <laughs> I already, already grabbed it. Well, it's about time they closed it. Nobody yeah. was going in there anyway. <clears throat> yeah, they were paying a lot of money and nobody was there. Well, I'm glad to hear they're, they're making some adjustments, but. Um, Back to you and your work and your book. Uh, it 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 wasn't understood in its time. Your first book, the the My Search for Warren Harding, was published in 1983, and you said people didn't understand that the narrator was gay. The main <clears throat> character was gay. Uh, nobody ever mentioned that at the time. Yeah, but no. you thought you made it pretty obvious. I thought so. Yeah. I mean, have you read it? No, but I'm gonna. <laughs> I didn't even know you wrote a book, to be honest with you. Okay, well, we could have a discussion about it, but you hadn't read it. But anyway, yes, that was. Uh, he, but he would not admit it to anybody, even himself. Right. Which I think is a very fun theme, because it's still this problem still exists today of these closeted gay men, who can't even admit to themselves that they're gay. 
and I find that there are a lot of uh, evil closeted men. It makes them behave badly. And closeted gay men, in my experience, uh, are some of the most misogynistic men on earth. Like they, they seem to particularly hate women for their, their circumstance. Do you think that's... that's well, it certainly used to be true back in the day. I mean, there, uh, when I was uh, living in New York uh, and um, was very much a part of that gay subculture and the real um, fast lane gay subculture, um, a lot of gay men really had nothing to do with women and didn't particularly like them. Mm-hmm. I, I think a lot of that has changed, and certainly it's officially changed. And, mm-hmm. you know, now they're all brothers and sisters. But back in those days, yes, absolutely. But closeted gay men in particular, I mean, the amount of gay men who are rabid conservatives um, is always kind of interesting to me. I, I find that there was this investigative reporter he named uh, Nick Bryant, and he was the guy who discovered the Epstein Black Book and the Franklin Credit Scandal, and he focuses on sexual blackmail. And he has this formula, which is that Democrats like little girls and Republicans like little boys. And it's very interesting that, that, that the, the people who are most homophobic, who are passing the, the most anti-gay laws, are in fact themselves frequently gay. Oh, that's absolutely true. Why is that, <clears throat> you think? <clears throat> um, Self-loathing or something else? I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, you know, you don't want that. That's the answer you don't want to hear, but I, I, I don't well, know. I don't know either. I mean, there might be some weird, like, psychosexual... Well, I, I mean, the, the logical reason is that they, they're they so terrified of the subject that they accuse other people of it right. to, side, to deflect from themselves. Mm-hmm. But, but when somebody gets very... Um, loquacious about how awful gay people are it's always a tip-off that there's something going on in their mind that's right. a little off yeah i've always kind of yeah people uh, me, me thinks he doth protest too much kind of thing exactly right? exactly yeah, yeah. and and there are a lot of examples uh that's the senator remember larry craig mm-hmm. perfect example the 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 foot guy in the right. bathroom yeah and and <clears throat> i would be very sympathetic to them because it's 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 often difficult for somebody to reconcile being gay with their lives, <clears throat> but on the other hand, when they start uh, voting anti-gay legislation, then they are my and any logical person's enemy because they're such hypocrites and they have to be destroyed and hounded from office. Uh, Nick Bryant, that same uh, investigative reporter, talks about how there's actually um, being sexually blackmailed, which. I think being gay and sexually blackmailed was a lot easier and, and continues to be a bit easier of a thing to do because it's, it's still taboo to be in certain positions of power and to be a gay man or a gay woman, but particularly a gay man, um, that there are a lot of, that you can actually, uh, uh, being sexually blackmailed is good for your career. That being compromised to that extent means that, oh, we can control this person and we can put them in positions of power. So it's always interesting to find out all of these uh, gay figures, like uh, Dennis Hastert, for instance, another Republican, signed a bunch of anti-gay stuff, uh, turned out to be a gay pedophile, um, 
was at one point like the third most powerful politician in the country. And it's just like this, it wasn't a secret to people like who would have been your father, FBI agents. They all knew like what he was doing. He even brought young boys into the White House. I mean, he was doing crazy shit. Um, and so it like, it elevates them in those positions. So that's why, to some extent, I wonder if they make up a disproportionate amount of elected officials because they can be compromised. <laughs> He loves it. He loves the soda, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> it's face. very strong. Okay. I mean, you put too much in there. I don't know. Okay. Um, what you said does not make sense to me, to be perfectly honest. And, I, and, I, and I don't really... I, I have not researched Dennis Hastert at mm. all, so I don't know if other people knew about him. Um, I, but I don't make the leap that that somehow ends up putting him in a position that's more powerful because people can control him. I, maybe it's true. It's just mm-hmm. nothing I have ever really seen happen. So, Well, that's not why I necessarily brought you on the show anyway. I brought you on the show not to talk about uh, sexual blackmail, but to talk about um, the dearly departed Paul Rubenfeld, also known as Pee Wee Herman. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, for those of you who don't know... Uh, Paul passed a little more than a week ago now? Yes, about yeah. two weeks ago, actually. At seven years old from cancer. Um, and it was a, especially a strange experience for me at the time because I had just been on the phone with HBO producers to talk about doing a, potentially like a, a, a peewee documentary because Paul was from Sarasota and is uh, a, a family friend. And so to then a few hours later get a call from another one of my friends uh, to be like, hey, Paul died. I was like, what? Uh, this, this is strange, you know, when those, those kind of yeah. odd moments happen. Um, but you were, were uh, I, when I wanted to do a story about Paul to kind of recontextualize the idea people had about him because frequently when I would bring up or, you know, try and brag about being family friends with Pee Wee Herman, people would be like, Oh, that he's a pedophile. Right. And I'd be like, no, no, he's not. And it was very frustrating. Uh, yes. And I'm amazed that, that, that people were so, uh, kind about that after he died. You know, that was not that was the outpouring of love that I thought was much more overpowerful than anything about those mistakes he made. Because, as you and I know, he was not a pedophile. Right. Um, and he was, you know, arrested several times for reasons that a lot of people get arrested and it's no big deal. Like loitering and... Well, I, there were, there were, he was... I think he was careless about certain things. I know his marijuana arrest was due to carelessness. Mm-hmm. But, you know, who hasn't been arrested for marijuana? Have you been arrested for marijuana? Uh, <laughs> you know, I've, have I? You know, that's a good question. I really can't remember. But good answer. the other yeah. stuff that Paul was arrested for, without getting into details, I understand that situation very, very well. Mm-hmm. And um, I won't say I was, a, well, okay, just twice <laughs> was I arrested for it. <laughs> well, we arrested for, for marijuana? No. For... Uh, 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 that kind of stuff that they do in adult theaters. 
Okay, so I should on this gay scale thing I talked I asked you about, I should put a couple points there. <laughs> How gay you are. <laughs> um yeah, so it, but 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 uh, let me let me tell you the lesson I learned from this. Yeah, okay? tell me the lesson. He was entrapped. Yes. I, you know, I don't know how how well everybody understands that crucial fact, but he was entrapped. And men who are arrested in that situation, it's all about entrapment. Right. It's all about entrapment. No, I mean, with, with the way they they went about it was really fucked up. And I want to tell the story from the beginning with you. But I want to go back to what you were saying about how the outpouring of love since his death um, has been a little surprising. I was a little surprised. That yeah, me too. He, he is going to be vindicated in death. And, yes. I, I, and it turns out that um, HBO is already working on uh, a different uh, series or a different documentary that he's been doing, I think, in preparation of his death because he, he was diagnosed with this terminal cancer six or seven years ago. And from what I understand, the Safdie brothers are working on it, which is a really good, like, really good news that, that those, those two guys are doing it because they do great work. Um, I was at a comedy show last Monday in New York City and uh, this comedian named Sarah Squirm, she's on uh, SNL. Uh, do you watch SNL? Not anymore, no. I mean, it's very bad, but she's very good. Um, and she, um, her name is Sarah Sherman. She dresses all goofy. And for like the first five minutes, she's just like screaming at the top of her lungs about how much she loves Paul and how unfair it is that he died and how he was this inspiration to her as a, as a comedian. And I was just, it was just like really touching to, to see that, that people like love him and that the other stuff is, is going to fade and maybe makes his life story a bit more interesting in a way, like it, a, like a tragic figure, but like a true artist kind of thing. Well, totally, totally. Um, so let's go back to the beginning, I guess, where it's 1991. You're living here in Sarasota. Uh, as a writer, and you find out you're in Miami when this happens, but right, but, I happen to be in Miami when he was arrested. Yes. Right. So let's start from there. Like, tell me the story of Paul getting arrested. Um. Well, from my point of view, or from Paul's point of view. Um, I think I. I mean, I. I. I'd like to hear both. I mean, tell it as you see fit. Okay. Well. I was in Miami when I heard it on the news, and the thing that astonished me was that I knew about his previous arrest mm -hmm. at another adult bookstore, and nobody knew about that. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to remember how I did know, and I, and I really can't. But to me, it was like very, uh, you know, you could that's kind of blackmail kind of information because he, here he was, this big uh, star for kids. Mm -hmm. It was, you know, he did a, dang, a dangerous thing had happened to him, and it was still hanging in the air. And, and you had the integrity not to... Oh, to, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say anything like that. No, right. I, absolutely not. Right. I mean, that's... that's uh, uh, who who would do something like that unless they were an ambitious young reporter who would stop at nothing? But <laughs> that was, yeah, okay, <laughs> certainly wasn't me. Anyway, um, <clears throat> but the thing that really astonished me about the piece of information was where he was arrested, because it was the Triple X uh, Cinema on the South Trail, which was owned by one of my best friends here in Sarasota. Mm -hmm who was a very interesting character in himself. So I thought, you know, wow, I know all the different pieces to this story. 
and so I decided to go into it in much more detail. Mm-hmm. And um, well, the story itself of you writing the story was very, very <clears throat> interesting because you got ten thousand dollars from Vanity Fair to to get this piece because you promised that you could get an interview with him because you were friends with his mother. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then what happened? Well, then I got a hold of his mother, mm-hmm. and of course she was being besieged by the world of media because everybody wanted. Uh, either an interview with him or an interview with her or any an interview with anybody who had anything to do with it. And because we were friends, she really tried very hard to get me the interview with Paul. Mm-hmm. And um, they decided there were going to be absolutely no interviews. So I didn't get the interview. No. But um, in retrospect, he has since said that he wished he had done something like right. that. Yeah. Because he realized one of his big mistakes was that he didn't try and take ownership of what happened to him. So he just let the press say whatever they wanted. And that was part of his manager's policy, too, was just like separating Paul from Pee Wee as much as possible. Uh, definitely. I don't know what that had to do with the arrest because they were, there was nothing, there was no good answer. There was nothing, you know, back in those days these kind of things really did end careers immediately. Yeah, because we were still dealing with, like, the tremors of the AIDS crisis, and, you know, I think homosexuality was still enormously taboo at that point in time, like a total career killer. Well, yes and no, but definitely yes as far as there was somebody whose audience was children. Yeah. (laughs) That was what pushed it over the edge. There was just no getting around that. And I totally understand that. I totally understand how that happened. Um, let's talk about Paul's perspective. Let's rewind and get, and say and what what happened to get Paul arrested. I mean, how did how did it come about? Well, the 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 Sarasota Vice Squad at that point they would spend um, untold hours at the uh, adult theater. Uh, looking for people to arrest. In your story, you said they were dressed often in like cut-off jean shorts and like tight. Yeah, because shirts. because the 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 clientele at the adult theater was not a bunch of winos and bums and homeless people off the street. It mm-hmm. was you know uh, older men from Sarasota, so they were dressed like they just come from um, playing golf or something like that. So it was, you know, my, it was not a sleazy crowd by by any stretch of the imagination. So weren't was, they? Didn't they stick out like as? I mean, yes, they they <laughs> would come in. They'd stay, like they'd stay for six hours and hang out and watch the movies, and everybody knew it was a scam and it was a racket, you know. And the people who ran the theater were forbidden to warn anybody, or they would be arrested for obstruction of justice. It was, it was dark, so they couldn't really see them anyway. Well. I, I don't know. You tell me. Tell me what. Tell, describe to me the, like what I. Okay, as as a millennial, as someone who, uh, you know, my my first experience with pornography was stealing Playboy magazines from the Sarasota airport before uh, 9/11. You could just like walk into the kiosk, and we would hide the the magazines in like these wooded areas, and then into like the internet. But like a, a porn theater is like beyond my scope. I can I mean I've seen it in like 70s noir type movies, but like what was a, a porn theater like? Well, the the 
this was before the internet, so right. pornography on the internet was to- was unavailable because yeah, the internet yeah, didn't no exist, way. and pornography in general was kind of hard to find. Mm-hmm. And you could uh, go to a porn theater, and they were not cheap. I think it was eight dollars to get in, which was a lot of money in those days, eight dollars. Mm-hmm. And then you got this empty theater, and it was never particularly crowded. And there are men watching the movie masturbating, mm-hmm. but then there's uh, a certain amount of action. If you look around, you'll see two men sitting next to each other, and they are um, playing with each other. Sure. And that was what happened in in these porn theaters. That's what the, that's what went on. If you're a germaphobe, it sounds kind of gross. Oh, that was a constant worry. <laughs> <laughs> like a lot of, you know, movie theaters are already pretty sticky as it is. But you, at least you know back like now it's like probably like someone spilled soda or like Swedish fish or something. It, it yeah, there there was always that feeling that that there was a lot of. Um, layers of all of you didn't want to know what on every seat <laughs> oh, God. and which is one of the reasons that they had to be shut down because then when aids happened you know they it just became uh right incomprehensible but the, com- the the compulsion the need to to get off like supersedes the the like health concerns i guess oh totally yeah. totally totally yeah totally and people still do awful things to get laid and think well like the, the, the horny blinders make you do weird things. I, I guess so. I mean, it's so different now What with the internet and, and those... It's worse. It's way worse for us. It, it's so much worse for our brain than I think uh, being in a sticky porn theater. But it's like... And, you know, like things like Grindr, which I don't, don't, don't use and really don't know how to use, but that's what all the gay guys do these days mm-hmm. or the ones that still date... And so that you know, it's it's all different now. Right. But back in the old days, that's how it was done. Yeah. That's how it was done. And I guess these things were just kind of like a a common casualty of of these theaters, or was this like was Sarasota's sting operation particularly cruel? Yes. Yes, it was. Yeah. It was. And, and um, I, I'm not sure why. It's usually at the direction of whoever the sheriff is at that time. And I remember who the sheriff is, but I couldn't care less about embarrassing him. I mean, I'm not going to embarrass him after all these years because... um, He's still alive? I don't know. I don't know. Um, But... He was probably gay, actually. My theory is he's gay, and that's why he did this. (laughs) Well, you see a lot of those sheriffs on on TV, you know, and then a pedophile gets arrested, and they love going on... on TV that that night at six, and and talking about how awful this person was. Yeah, there's that guy Judge Grady, the Pasco County. Yeah, one. yeah, he's yeah. one. Of, he's one of the worst. You think he's gay? I I, I certainly wouldn't even hazard a <laughs> guess. You idiot. <laughs> it was parody. This is a comedy podcast. Well, well, <laughs> you can't. Nobody, nobody can sue us for nothing. But no, he's. I, I. The more likely answer is that he's a very astute politician because that kind yeah. of thing works. Bob, wink if you think he's gay. Nobody else can see. <laughs> um. <laughs> um. So, okay. So Sarasota, a particularly cruel sting operation. The, the detail in your story, everyone should read the Sarasota Magazine article. It is so good. Bob, you are such a good writer. 
or were. I don't know how you're still writing. Were. Read some, yeah. <laughs> you were, you were, that article is so, so well done. Um, the, the detail of, yeah, the, the fact that these cops would hang out for, you know, five and a half, six hours in these theaters, just watching mostly gay porn. Is it, was it mostly no, gay? No, no, it was all straight all porn. Stra- it was all straight porn. Totally straight oh, porn. It wasn't, it wasn't the gay porn theater. It was just straight porn. I don't think there was one in Sarasota, to my knowledge. I think there are a couple in, up in uh, so Tampa. So they weren't even trying to sting gay guys necessarily. There. No, I don't understand what you mean. You, the, it was straight porn, but a lot of the audience was gay. Okay. Because there were other gay men there. Also, it was a trysting spot for gay guys, among okay. other things. Okay. So that's because they knew that they could find. Another horny gay guy somewhere in the theater. Because I thought that they were watching gay porn for six hours, which um, I thought would be a, would be very funny to make cops do, um, especially if they were straight cops, uh, and how it might <laughs> warp their minds a little bit. Um, you, you've heard of that movie, The Sound of Freedom, that's out right now. It's like that. I've heard of it. I haven't seen it. Yeah. So uh-huh. it's it's this uh, basically like Christian QAnon pedophile hunting fantasy movie that has did surprisingly well in the box office largely through a lot of fraud like they were doing this pay it forward thing where people would buy just like a bunch of tickets and pay it forward so people would show up to like empty theaters that were said they were sold out and a lot of fun like uh conspiracy nonsense involved in it but the guy who is the um protagonist who the film is based off of this this man named tim ballard who founded who's like a former cia agent uh, he uh, he talked about having to watch ten thousand hours of child pornography, and that was a very odd thing for him to openly admit having done. To me, it's kind of like him telling on himself in a way. Like if you have to watch that ten thousand, why did he have to do this? To like sting pedophiles or something like that it was part of his. It was part of his operation. Was like. Oh, like finding out who the people were in the film and the children and the details and like using okay. detective work right. to find I, out who I they are. I understand what he's saying. But at the same <clears throat> time, that's that's bad for you to have to watch that much. And it was just a weird way of telling on himself. So I was trying to make that connection with like the cops having to watch you know six hours of porn a day and what that might do to them. Or But being in that environment for that long is like, you know, weird. Well, it, you might think that, but then, like, you know, my friend owned the theater and the guy mm-hmm. who managed the theater and was there all the time every day. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a very good job that he had. <laughs> so um, maybe yes, maybe no. I don't know. Um, the, the term uh, that the Internet uses right now for people who watch, like, obscene amounts of porn, they call, they call them gooners. Yes, I've heard that. You've term. heard that term? Yeah. <laughs> it's been applied to me. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, good to know. Um, so, okay, let's go back to Paul. So, uh, in your story for that was going to be for Vanity Fair, but ended up in Sarasota Magazine, um, you talked about how Paul was at the Oslo Theater, um, just, you know, being friendly, making the rounds, and then drove himself to this uh, porn theater on the South Trail. And then what happened? Um, <clears throat> he watched the movie for a while, now, one thing a lot of people don't know is that there were tapes of that evening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, I didn't find this out until long afterwards when the guy who managed the theater told me. And he 
hated the media and was totally on Paul's side, so he never mentioned the tapes to the cops or to the media or anything to help Paul out, mm -hmm. which was a wonderful thing for him to do. The tapes really didn't show anything except Paul would come out in the lobby every once in a while and buy a Coke and then go back into the theater, but there was no, Gotta hydrate. Sus no suspicious activity. Um, <clears throat> and then... Okay, you may even know better than I do exactly. I think he left and then was arrested. Mm -hmm. I don't think he was arrested actually while he was doing anything in the theater. I think it's when he left the theater they came up and said, one minute, mm -hmm. young man. Does that jibe with what you know about the situation? Um, yeah, and according to your, your story, that's oh, what okay. happens. They, they seem to arrest him in the parking lot, and mm -hmm. he made the grand <clears throat> mistake of blurting out his name or his his uh nom de plume his uh peewee i'm peewee herman is what he's well saying. i'm sure he gave his real name and everything and then when he saw how desperate his plight was he desperately said i'm peewee herman right and i is there any way we can get out i can get out of this because it's not good for me and i could maybe i'll even do a benefit for the police department next time i'm i'm in town and they said no, and they took him down to jail. Which was a huge mistake. I mean, you know... Uh, I, that's not what caused his downfall, though, according to the story, the way I understand it. Mm -hmm. It was a reporter at the Herald Tribune who recognized the name. Because the police department was so evil back in those days that they would put the names and addresses of all the men who had been arrested for that sort of thing in the paper regularly. I don't even know if you remember that, but it was the Herald Tribune that did that, disgracefully enough. Mm -hmm. And one of, the un one of the reporters in the office saw that list, recognized the name uh, Rubenfeld and the address, and realized who had been arrested, is mm -hmm. the way I understand the story. Right. I mean, yeah, I think it, it would have been next to impossible for him to completely skate from that. Um, but according to my father, uh, he, he said it could have been handled a little differently. Um, but to get it out, I, I think that the real mistake was, yeah, not talking about it. Not not trying to get control of the narrative somehow. But um, I, I think... Had it been, like you said, anybody else who wasn't the star of a children's television show, even if, you know, to call Pee-wee's Playhouse a, ch a children's television show is not not to get enough credit for what it actually was. No, true, but but there was still that, that child element that was baked into the situation. Mm -hmm. So... And, and I don't really know if he could have gotten control of it. I mean, in retrospect, that's a way of saying, gee, it might have been different if I'd done this, but it might not have been different. So mm -hmm. I'm, not, I'm not even sure that, um, you know, what he could have done because of the fact that kids watched him and looked up to him. Right. So. And maybe that's where, like, the, the pedophile association comes from. Oh, absolutely. Even though, and and that's stupid. People are making that assumption. But then, to, then when he was arrested for the child pornography case, 
then that was brought up again in a in a way that you know two strikes and you're out kind of situation mm -hmm. so uh that's what he had a very hard time living down we're, we're seeing it, it i guess it's nothing new but the culture today surrounding um homosexuality or the i, I pride myself on being able to like read the political tea leaves pretty well but i completely misread this one which is the rise of homophobia like the 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 resurrection of homophobia in this country it seemed like it was on this downward trajectory like people didn't really give a shit anymore even donald trump for all of his evil uh was like i love the gays you know he's like holding up a gay a, a, a rainbow flag and for him, it was like, so long as you're loyal to me, I, you're fine by my whatever. And his mentor, Roy Cohn, was famously gay as well. So, you know, he he, he is actually, I think, our, our first... He's not our first gay president. We've had other gay presidents for sure, right? Trump? Yeah. Trump is very... I mean, Trump <clears throat> is, very, is gay in that he's incredibly catty and, like, uh, concerned... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, gay people are so catty. That's always the first thing I notice about them. You bitch. <laughs> no, but like, you know what I mean? Like he's uh he's like the New York fashion gay, you know, socialite gay guy. Like I I I don't see Trump that way. Okay. I just see him like when he's being like, "Can you believe what she was wearing? She looks so fat." You know, it's like that's like Well, that's a man who doesn't like women talking. A closeted gay man. But some gay men like women. Sure. I'm, I, I'm not saying no. I'm not saying all. Of course not. Okay. All. I'm all right. But, <laughs> but keep going with your slur. <laughs> no, no, no. It wasn't a slur. I was saying I'm I'm shocked by the the uh, uh, like the return of this oh. kind of homophobia <clears throat> in this country. I thought that we were. <coughs> I thought that we were like moving away from that. Right, and I I mean I I know what you mean, and I wonder. If there is a return to it, because uh, public attitudes have changed enormously, enormously, enormously. And yes, some people are realizing that it's a great way to um, attack people, feel better about yourself, and adhere to your uh, fundamentalist religious beliefs. And I, th I think that's kind of what's happening. There's, But in a way, like this new wave of homophobia almost feels secular like it's not as driven by christian nationalism as by this more bizarre concern with with pedophilia i mean that it's not new to tie homosexuality with pedophilia i think that that's one way of making it especially seem especially sinister it's like oh they're not only are they corrupting our children but they're preying on them on top of it um and so the whole like earlier it was tell me like in it homophobia in like the 70s and 80s and 90s was it as a, a, a child focused were they as no, worried no yeah. no so this is a new thing right? oh no it's not a new thing i think it goes yeah. back hundreds and hundreds of years yeah. um but back in the 70s um and the uh 80s it um the the very fact of homosexuality was bad enough. 
Mm-hmm. You know, you didn't even have you didn't have to uh, hurt them even more by bringing children into it. It was bad enough, right? And so maybe that's like the new because homosexuality was tempered with like a greater like under cultural understanding and acceptance. Now we have to like bring like this whole child corruption, trans. They're you know trying. Well, to but the, I think most of that has to do with trans. Yeah, and. <clears throat> I, I'm I'm mystified by that situation. Uh, why it's why there's so many young people who identify as trans and why they have to change their pronouns and gender fluid dressing and that kind of stuff. It's a, it's a subject I know nothing about and am very puzzled by. I find it fascinating, um, and uh, you know, I I think that it's <laughs> I don't want to even begin talking about why there's this rise in uh, trans culture and trans um, identifying behavior, especially in, in my generation and younger. Um, and I think it has a lot to do with uh, alienation. Um, I think, I mean, I saw some some like Pew poll or whatever that said, or Gallup poll that said like 7% of the population of the United States identifies as gay, lesbian, or trans. Um, and... I think that number is way higher. I think way more people are gay than than like are willing to admit it. Um, but the the trans stuff it it's a very online thing right now. I think, and I think a lot of it has to do with hyper individual hyper individualization and this need to self realize. And it's uh, there. I mean, I can get in trouble for saying some of this stuff, but I think that. Um, there's this desire to belong in a society that is rootless, that gives you nothing to belong to. And so these identifying markers become more attractive and alluring to tell a story about yourself, to tell a story that has a narrative of victimization, of suffering, to explain like why you suffer. Um, so I think it's like very complicated and fraught and very dangerous to touch. I mean, you can get in a lot of trouble for saying the wrong thing and that's a mistake on uh, the part of you know queer and trans culture to make it something that dumb straight guys can't like try and grasp their head around, even if they try to do it earnestly and from a good place. Like misstepping can get you in a lot of trouble. Um, but the conservative concern of trans people is is something else entirely. Trans people make up there there are less trans people than there are Jews in this country. Um, but they t- make up such an outsized proportion of the cultural narrative. And largely because like, they are challenging what it means to be human in a lot of interesting ways. Um, and it, for a lot of people, that's very scary. Um, but it's a red herring. It's nonsense. It's not, it's not like an actual issue. I, d- I disagree. <clears throat> Go on. I think... Um Worrying about your, well, back in the olden days, mm-hmm. worrying about your child's sexuality <clears throat> and protecting it and making sure it went the way it should have gone was a major, major concern of people. Mm-hmm. And that was there, was if there was any deviation from that, <clears throat> uh, it, it, you were in trouble. I remember uh, when I was a kid, I liked to play with dolls. I quickly learned how dangerous that was. That that your father didn't like it. 
if people found out at school, you would be bullied. It was just something you didn't do if you wanted to be on the safe side and stay out of trouble. You did it when nobody was around. And th- didn't that make it more exciting and more fun that you weren't supposed no, to? That was a dangerous no, thing? No, to, no, not to me. To me, it was um, um, an inconvenience, an enormous mm-hmm. inconvenience, because I had to do it in private. Not that I played with a lot of dolls, but... It, for me, it was at least at least a possibility, and I, I liked the things girls did to play better than what boys did. Mm-hmm. You know, girls would pretend to cook and things like that, and boys were out there playing football. I would rather be with the girls and and have tea parties. But I realized that was a very very dangerous way to act back in those days. So you learn how to cover it up totally, or as best you can, and then. And this is the thing that kind of frightens me about today's people, youth. You outgrow it. And I, I'm wondering if those kids who are being encouraged to wear dresses are being done a disservice because most of them will outgrow it. I mean, I, I, I understand the concern of um, giving people drugs and surgeries. Uh, in general, I am completely against getting cut open unless it's like something that's terminal, uh, if, if you need to save your life. But um, I don't I, I don't like, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm a weird, but that's like a, just an overall medicine thing. It has nothing to do with gender for me. Um, so I, I do get the concern of permanently damaging people's bodies <clears throat> in irreparable ways. Um, but that also just makes up such a small, 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 small sliver of... It does. And that tiny sliver is causing this enormous national right. crisis. Right. So <clears throat> what can you deduce from that? It's a very dangerous thing. Changing your sex is a very... Sex is the most dangerous thing around on every possible level. Right. No, I, I mean, in the, which is, um, but that's like a very American thing. I think in other countries, it's a little different. Although it's changing, it's constantly changing. It's worse in some countries. It's worse in some, and it's better in others. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I think you're right. And I think that it's also just more uh, about, it's more entertaining. Like, I think sex stories, sex sells, and it sells politically as well. And so to find yourself mixed up in a, sex scandal even if it's like who cares have you heard about the recent obama being gay rumors that are like resurfacing (laughs) well so there for years have been these theories that obama's gay and michelle's a man um and uh conservatives are obsessed with this idea and recently obama's private chef died uh on a, a paddleboarding accident in front of his uh, Martha's Vineyard Mansion, and of course that just is, you know, fucking crack for like right wing nuts. And it's weird. Don't get me wrong. You know, it's weird to drown in that circumstance. Um, but there's been this whole new sort of uh, reviving of these bizarre characters, like this guy named Larry Sinclair, who claims he was giving Obama blowjobs for drug, like giving Obama blowjobs for drugs for like the better part of 10 years. Um, and my general feeling about that stuff is I don't fucking care. <laughs> like Obama could be gay. Michelle could be a man. I don't give a shit. Um, all I care about is policy. 
And by those standards, I'm not a big Obama fan. But uh, it, it is still interesting that that's what people care about. That that's what that's what gets them revved up and, and, and motivated. Well, and I'm one of those people. Why is that? It's exciting. And it's titillating. And you always want to know about people's sex lives. It's part of human nature. Yeah. You, you, you're curious about people's sex lives, particularly celebrities and even ordinary people, because sometimes ordinary people have the most interesting sex lives. Who, who, which, which famous person do you think has the most interesting sex life? Trump. Trump? He doesn't have sex. Well, there was Stormy Daniels. There's only like one. I, I think he's he's such a germaphobe. I just can't imagine. I think he I think he likes to like perform the idea of sex. I don't even think he had sex with Stormy Daniels. But I think, but even if he has no sex whatsoever, that's interesting. Yeah. You know what what turns him on? What because you know the older you get, you realize that at least with men, there's one thing that they all that turns them on more than anything, mm-hmm. and it's like you know getting spanked or something like that. <laughs> or it's lingerie, yeah, yeah, yeah. or or you know it could be it's or it could be a, a specific sex act that's kind of unusual, and to me it's fascinating to find that out, yeah, because it's often the key to the person's character, so that's why I'm interested. You know, I always think about sex is very goofy to me. Um, the one time I talked to God. Uh, or whatever it was, it, it told it laughed at the idea of sex. It made it made sex seem like a total like. What you were thing. talking to God and and yeah. he and he thought sex was laughable. Yeah. Well, I I can kind of see his point. It, well, you know, it's funny like watching animals in nature have sex and how silly they look. I always think about how like God or aliens would look at us and be like, "What the fuck are they up to?" <laughs> like, that is so bizarre. But but have but to me, you know, animals having sex, there it's so much aggression and and you know, hunting it down and forcing it upon somebody who actually is looking for it desperately too. So it but it's not wonderful shared intimacy by any stretch of the imagination but human beings have to pretend that their sex life is wonderful shared intimacy when in it's, fact it's, it's hunting and aggression <laughs> so i okay it depends I, I think whenever you look at nature there there's any example you want to prove your point exists in nature um i would argue that have you ever seen the how snails have sex no it's beautiful they like I, I I remember seeing this in like I think it was like the first Planet Earth uh, season, and they hang from this tree and they both drop their sexual organs and they do this beautiful slow like twisting dance and like are in this beautiful unison together, and so yeah there are there are there's like aggressive sex but then there's also like this really beautiful <clears throat> kind of sex okay, that is but the, the mean. <clears throat> more highly evolved animals the more aggressive it gets that's well look, look at cats who are highly evolved. You, you're a dog person, though. I, I know, because I think cats are even sluttier than dogs. <laughs> and the worst of all are raccoons. I've never seen raccoons. Oh, I, when I lived on this block, there, there were raccoons living over in Hans Wheeler's yard. And they'd get up in the trees and they'd mate and they'd scream at the top of their lungs. And they would go on all night and you'd shine a flashlight up and tell them to get lost. And they'd look at you and smirk and keep doing it. <laughs> That's their kink. They like to be watched. <laughs> but they're, 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 they're horrible, horrible human beings. Um, 
I find I sometimes wonder if uh, I mean I, I like the idea of like transcending horny. The last thing I want to be in life is a horny old man. Like I'd want to I want to like get rid of that out of my system but, at but a certain we, point. What, you, when you're an old man, you don't want to be horny. Yeah, you won't be. <laughs> don't <laughs> worry good. about it. Oh, <laughs> it will go away. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> um, well, on that note, Bob. <laughs> um, uh, everybody, please. Look at Bob's work. Um, you know, I, I hope that, you know, the last 20, 30 years of your life are basking in your own celebrity and people are curious about your sex life uh, as a celebrity. Not yet. No, <laughs> no not there. No. Um, is there anything you want to always do the whole plug thing at the end of uh, an episode? You want to buy my book called My Search for Warren Harding. Mm hmm. New Directions Publishers by the one that's coming out in May called Love Junkie. And um, very excited for your upcoming book about uh, a closeted uh, Jewish Confederate. Yeah, that that will probably be published posthumously. Mm -hmm. And let's hope it's soon. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Bob, thanks a bunch. Thank you.